I was joking with one of my friends today when I was playing golf with him. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going on this podcast tonight. He's like, oh, like, who else does he talk to? I was like, oh, you know, I'm just going to follow uh, the Florida head coach because the Baylor head coach, the Penn State <laughs> head coach. I'm like, uh, you know, just people that I think are like the best coaches ever. And, and, and then me. So. <laughs> but, no pressure. No pressure. Yeah, yeah no pressure. But. This is the On The Touchline podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. Welcome to the show. In season two, episode 17, I talked to the head women's soccer coach at Wayne State College in Wayne, Nebraska, Joe Cleary. If you love an underdog story, And if you love a story of someone that has truly climbed uphill to make it to where they are in the game, this episode is definitely for you. So raise your hand if you've ever had that moment of doubt in coaching soccer or whatever profession you might be in where you've asked yourself, is this really for me? And Joe encountered a few of those moments early on in his career. I won't spoil it by telling you sort of the great lengths he went to and some of the adversities he encountered uh, to make it to the head uh, head coaching role that he is currently in. But I absolutely love coaches and guests that I've been connected to that fight through that adversity. And having encountered some of that in my own life, I guess I'm drawn to those types of guests. So Joe, I've loved your backstory, and I can't wait to share that with the audience in this episode. Before we get going with Joe, a few housekeeping items that are important to help keeping this show growing, help keeping the lights on. So whether you follow me on social media or are planning to in the near future, I would love to connect with you. And I'm highly active on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find me at Soccer Coach JB. So please reach out. Uh, if there is something that you like about the show, be sure to share it and tag me when you do so. And would love to connect with you that way. And of course, thank you for listening. Uh, it really does mean a lot uh, to having you subscribe and, and listen to the show. This podcast is available on 12 different podcasting platforms, all the big places, Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Tune in Radio, iHeartRadio, and the list goes on. If you listen to this podcast on Apple Podcast, go there now, leave a five-star rating and a review. And I mention this every episode because it really does help more and more people so when they type in Soccer Podcast that they can find this show easily. So if you haven't done that, it really would mean the world to me if you went there now, left a five-star rating, in a brief review about the show. I've had a few instances lately where I've had people come up to me and say, hey, I listen to your podcast and I really enjoy the content that you're putting out. If you have ideas for guests or suggestions for the show, uh, by all means, reach out through DM on Twitter or Instagram and I would love to hear those. And also, last but not least, I've included in the show notes of... uh, this podcast, how you can subscribe to the new monthly newsletter that I'll be putting out at the end of June. All you need to do is just put in your email address and you'll be on the mailing list to receive monthly email communication from me about the show. All right, enough with the housekeeping items. Let's get to it. I hope you enjoy episode 17 of season two, my conversation with the head women's coach at Wayne State College, Joe Cleary. Like I said, just showcasing everybody that makes up our game is really important. And, you know, the fact that, um, you know, you're, you're in a part of a, in the part of the country, if I can talk, that probably often gets overlooked in terms of soccer. And people don't necessarily think about, you know, the Midwest or 
um, you know, the upper Midwest or whatever. I, I, I'm, uh, so, I, I'm, from that, North, I'm from North Dakota, the, the wasteland of soccer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> wow. But you know, well, what's, uh, what's, yeah, what's, go ahead. what's funny is, so I'm from North Dakota and I, and we could probably talk about this once we start recording, but, um, when I lived in Bismarck and that's where I was most, I wasn't born there, but I was raised most of my life there. Um, I, I got the opportunity to work with some of the best coaches I've worked with who were not just highly licensed, but just also very good, good at coaching. Um, but also our community was great. And, um, for about five or six years, there was a, there was a burger, there was a burger, like a sports bar and burger place that was called Reza's Pitch that was opened by an Iranian uh, man who's lived in Bismarck forever and has been in the restaurant industry. And it was a, it was a soccer bar in Bismarck, North Dakota that succeeded. It succeeded. And the only reason he closed was because someone came in and offered him probably double the value of his property. And he wanted to retire because he was getting old. Um, but otherwise, like that was, that was a place that you had to show up if you wanted to watch a soccer game. That was the place you went and you had to show up if you wanted to watch a U.S. World Cup game and the get kickoff was at one. You were showing up at 11, 1030 to try and get a spot. And I mean, it was our place. And like there's places that have mil a million people that don't have a soccer, a, a soccer specific. They might have a place where soccer people meet, but this was literally called Reza's Pitch and everything was themed soccer with a big soccer ball on the side of the building. So um, that was in Bismarck, North Dakota, of all places. So, I I think that's fantastic, and I think that um, <clears throat> you know the it, th that's exactly what sort of uh, you know I, I find so fascinating about our game, right? That I've talked to people in Alabama, and they tell me about these sort of like you know little hotspots of uh, where the game is you know, uh, popular, maybe at the youth level, or they're doing some really good things at like the USL level, or um, I feel like I've talked to people, you know, all over the US. And, you know, even the the one guest that I had on from Toronto that, um, yeah, I mean, there's these little, little pockets of it. And, you know, having never been to, to Bismarck, uh, North Dakota, but I bet that that was a really cool experience. Um, you know, having that, and especially as a person, you know, obviously, that, that cares deeply about the sport that, um, you know, like you said, it was sort of your place uh, and you kind of felt, you know, at home there. Um, tell me about, so where did the introduction to soccer for you happen? And uh, was it as a youth player or, you know, were you sort of the uh, typical American kids like myself that played a bunch of different sports or tell me about your uh, sort of the origin story of uh, how you got to where you are? Yeah, I mean, I started playing soccer when I was six like a lot of Americans do in those rec leagues where you are given a green shirt or a blue shirt and that's who you play. You play against the blue team one week and the red team the next week. Um, I did play other sports when I was younger, um, but I not, I'm not very, I wasn't very athletic as a kid, still probably not athletic now. Um, so I was an average soccer player in North Dakota, which probably on the landscape of things means I was a pretty below average soccer player. Um, but I played club all the way through high school. Um, I eventually dropped out of other sports around the middle school time. Just basketball. I wasn't, you know, I was short. So basketball wasn't great for me. Um, didn't really enjoy baseball. Uh, didn't enjoy track cause it was running without a soccer ball. <laughs> and, uh, trying to think of any other sports that I played. Um, I tried football one year and it was just a disaster. I made it, I think a month. Um, but yeah. And then I, I, I loved playing high school soccer. I loved playing club soccer. And that was kind of my introduction to the game. I just growing up in Bismarck, that's, I played other sports, but I also, I soccer ended up winning out by the time I was 12 or 13 and not even because I was specializing because I wasn't, I wasn't athletic or good enough to specialize in any sport. It soccer just went out because that's what I enjoyed the most. And my parents were cool with that. Um, they traveled all over the Midwest to play me in, or let me play in club soccer tournaments. So that's kind of how I got introduced to the game. 
Yeah. Um, you had mentioned uh, earlier about, um, you know, when you're in Bismarck that, uh, you know, some of the coaches in terms of their, their skill or their ability to teach and coach the game. And I'm wondering, um, guessing here, but I wonder if that had a big impact on you um, as a coach and sort of when was that mark for you or if there was sort of a moment when you realized that, wow, like I really like this. I want to pursue this further. Yeah. Um, so I moved back to Bismarck and uh, after college um, and I started coaching a, a U10 team and my director of coaching, whose name is Tim Green, who I ended up coaching with later in my career as a, as a high school assistant coach. He was my director of coaching and, and just watching him do what he did in a minor role. Um, I, I really got hooked in the game and he supported me early. And then, but the moment really came when our clubs merged in Bismarck and I got the chance to work with coaches who had coached me, um, but also coaches that were at the college, uh, the University of Mary, where I ended up coaching at uh, later. Uh, and there was three of them, uh, Dave Cook and Sarah now Cook, because they're married, and uh, Levi Evans, who really not only took me under my under their wing and taught me, but also showed me that there was a path forward in you can be a coach and this can be a career and you can do what you love and still not make money, but you can still survive. I mean, like I have been making money, but you can survive and you can enjoy it. And so those three really supported me. And, and probably when I was around uh, 21 was when I was like, this is what I want to do. Uh, I want to, I want to coach soccer. I coached soccer in every fashion that I could by the time I was 21. So I didn't play college soccer. Uh, at the NCAA or NAIA level, so. I had a conversation with um, some of my soccer parents last night and, uh, you know, we're just talking a little bit about the future and one of the things that came up and they sort of looked at me as if, uh, you know, kind of a dog sort of <laughs> giving you that sideways look when I told them that my ultimate goal in coaching is uh, is probably to be a college coach. Um, I think that would be something that's sort of aspirational for me. And I, I'm curious as to, so when the, the love of coaching started, how you got there, um, I think, uh, you know, I had read that you've, you've coached high school, obviously being an assistant at the college level, now being a head coach. And I, I guess, take me through those steps of like where it started for you and, you know, was it as a volunteer or was it as a, uh, assistant coach at the high school level um, and sort of take me up to where you are now. Oh man, that's going to be a long story, but I could try and do it. Um, I actually was one of the coaches uh, and I know there's a lot of coaches out there who've done this. I did truly climb the ladder. Uh, when I was 19, I started as a volunteer assistant coach uh, for West Fargo high school in, in North Dakota Uh it was the only coach in Fargo at the time where I was going to college that emailed me back when I was, e I emailed every high school coach and asked if I could help out. I didn't need to be paid. And only he was the only one who emailed me back. And so I, I worked with them, worked with every team, freshman, JV, varsity, as much as I could, uh, loved it. Uh, then my uh, coach in my hometown, Tim Green, who I mentioned earlier, uh, he, called, he talked to me and asked if I wanted to coach for him as a paid high school coach. And so I transferred colleges so I could go coach a high school team to make a couple thousand dollars. Um, and I coached as a, a high school assistant coach on the boys side for three years. And all this time I was also coaching club um, at very, at different levels. And then um, from the high school assistant job. My last year of college, I asked the men's coach if I could be a student assistant, which he graciously allowed me to do. Um, so as a student assistant, I took the NCAA test and I tried my hand at recruiting. He let me call, he let me call kids and mainly focusing on junior college players. And then I was going to be a graduate assistant at the University of Mary, but the assistant or the head coach moved on. Uh, before I was going to work with him. And 
some things just didn't work out and I was looking for jobs forever. And he, when he ended up being the assistant coach at the university of Wyoming. So he called me and said, Hey, we have a volunteer assistant job open down in Laramie. Uh, is this something you would be interested in doing? And I didn't really have any other options graduating college and I really wanted to coach soccer. So I packed up everything I owned that fit into my Honda CRV and drove to Laramie, Wyoming and slept on an air mattress for several months at a really crappy apartment with another assist with the other assistant coach and basically did soccer all the time and worked two other jobs. I worked as a vet kennel uh, attendant and a academic tutor. And then I also donated plasma to make ends meet down there as a volunteer assistant. And I learned a ton and it was a great experience. And the Wyoming head coach who's still there, Pete Quadrado, still a mentor of mine and a friend, obviously. And kind of then I made the jump. I, I really wanted to make money. I thought that was super important at the time. And I made a jump back to the upper Midwest to be a club director uh, in Fargo and also coach, uh, be an assistant coach for a division three men's team. And after about eight months of being a club director, uh, I realized it wasn't for me. And I, I have the utmost respect for all club directors because I totally get the things that they have to deal with at that level. And it's, it's tough. So I, and that was a full-time job. So I quit that full-time job to go back to being a graduate assistant uh, back at the university of Mary on the women's side. I was there for a year and a half. I got a phone call in late July asking if I'd be interested in being an assistant, full-time assistant coach in at Wayne State College in Wayne, Nebraska, which is where I'm at now, the north northeast corner of Nebraska. And again, I kind of took a chance, uh, went down here, interviewed with Coach Bruce Erickson, got hired about 10 days before the season started in the fall, um, was an assistant here for two years. And then Coach Erickson left to be the head coach at University of Northern Iowa. And I was very lucky enough to get promoted to being the head coach at 28 a couple months later. And that's where I've been since, just two years, two years now as the head coach here. So kind of a long say, uh, so. I was going to say that uh, there had to have been some moments sleeping on, you know, someone's floor, uh, working, you know, these jobs that, uh, like you said, to make ends meet, um, volunteering as a coach that, did you ever ask yourself, is this going to work out? Uh, there were, two, I think two specific times, uh, stand out to me when I was probably the most stressed or the most worried. And one was right when I moved down to the university of Wyoming, I had a lot of camps lined up cause that was how I was going to that's how I was going to make ends meet and really be able to pay rent right away in the summer. And I had set up to work about three or four camps for this company. And then about a week before the first camp, uh, the person called me and said, our numbers weren't what they were. We thought they were going to be. So uh, we, I don't have a spot for you in terms of working these camps. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to pay rent. And I was really, I was like, did I just make the biggest mistake ever of just moving down here with no money and no job? And then thankfully the coaches I worked for helped connect me to working Regis soccer camps uh, in Denver. And I ended up working three of those camps. Um, but there was a couple of weeks where I was like, oh, I just made the biggest mistake of my life by moving to Laramie, Wyoming without a job and without any way to make money. Um, and then the second time was when I was here and going through the change of being the assistant coach, to the head coach, I didn't know if the athletic director felt strongly enough to promote me to being the head coach. And I didn't kind of know what was going to happen if I didn't get the promotion to being the head coach. Um, and that was a pretty stressful time because while trying to become the head coach. I also had to fill the role for, we were in spring season, early spring season. So I had to fill the role for our team of being their leader and being there for them and, and 
being a, a pillar of certainty in some uncertain times for all our, all our players. And uh, that was tough uh, for those couple months and probably one of the most relieved, relieving feelings when my AD sat me down after a really long day and said that uh, I was the one who was going to get the job. So those probably were the two moments that stand out the most in terms of not knowing if my path was going to going to work out or find its find its way. I excuse me. I admire your perseverance that uh, you know a lot of people probably would have given up. And uh, tip of the cap to you, man, because um, you know uh, sometimes the the vision or the uh, you know immediate. Uh, result that we want, especially in today's world, you know, having that patience, right? Um, you know, you could have easily walked away from a sport and a game that you love. I'm curious along the way, so you've, you've met a wide variety of coaches and backgrounds, and, um, you know, obviously been in, in a wide variety of roles. Tell me about your coaching philosophy in terms of what, you know, if you were to describe it to, you know, uh, the average person on the street, what would you say? Um, well, my philosophy of running a program is is that we we want to focus. Unfortunately, at the Division two level, not a lot of players are going to go on and play post college. So our biggest focus is: uh, can we make you the best of what you want to be coming into college uh, as an individual? Uh, so I would say. Off the field, we focus on you individually. On the field, we focus on us as a collective unit. Um, and that philosophy kind of goes from there. Um, so, uh, and then as far as soccer-wise, the coaching philosophy, um, I believe in in doing everything together. So, and, and that's the style of play is we defend together and we attack together. Um, you know, we uh, you can't play center forward and not know how to defend um and for me you can't play center back and not know how to score a goal if you're up on a set piece um so as as far as coaching philosophies go i think that's as basic as i can get you know just trying to keep it simple and but also keep it very player centric and player focused because at the end of the day that i do think that's our job as collegiate coaches is is helping mold our players, but also giving them the best possible experience that they can have uh, with the game. Cause I want players, I want players to leave our program wishing they had a fifth year or if they were a red shirt, wishing they had a sixth year. I, I never want to have a player leave our program and think, Oh, I'm so glad that's over with. I'm so glad I'm done playing soccer. Cause that would just, that, that kind of thing would probably break my heart. Um, because I want people to love the game as much as I do. Describe your uh, demeanor at um, a training session, and then describe your demeanor on, on match day. <laughs> um, my players, if I was going to say what my players would, would say, um, they would say at training that, I probably can be all over the place sometimes, um, but also I kind of, I demand the best in the little things and can kind of be nitpicky during training, especially uh, if it's something like receiving a with the proper foot or passing to the proper foot. Like I, I make a big deal in training about little things being important, and and I'm sure that uh, the players would echo that statement. And in, and in and on game day, I, I am excitable on the sidelines. I'm not I, not a joystick coach by any means, um, but I, I'm very competitive and very passionate about the game and uh, passionate about our players and want them to know that I got I have their back and I'm supporting them 100%. And I definitely, right, wrong, or otherwise, uh, live and die uh, with every every kick of the ball, almost like I'm a I'm a supporter of, of a team at times. Uh, I, I tell the players that I'm their, their biggest supporters behind their, their parents. So, and that definitely comes out in game day. Um, but I'm definitely, it can be excitable on the, on the bench. I think I've tried to balance that out a little bit as I've gotten older. Um, but definitely when I was younger, I was probably even worse, but, but yeah, that's kind of my demeanor on at practice and games.
I know uh, for us coaches, it's hard sometimes to, uh, you know, really, I don't know if I'd describe it as sort of come to terms with our blind spots. And I'll use myself as an example. Um, I have a hard time delegating. Uh, and I, I'm, <laughs> I tried like hell to work on that every season. And it is very much a work in progress for me, right? And, uh, you know, for, for, for being a person who in my personal life, and maybe even slightly in my professional life where details are important when they're important, but generally I'm more of a big picture guy, yet in football and soccer, I am highly detail oriented which I'm not quite sure why. <laughs> and I, I guess I'm wondering for you, you know, what would you say sort of may, might be a blind spot? And uh, how did you realize that? Or, um, you know, how did you go, you know, wake up one day, go, ooh, maybe this is something I might need to, you know, refine a little bit. I think when I said I was, I was, can sometimes be all over the place at training sessions, I think one of my blind spots in both personal and, and, and on the field is, is, is focus um, and not being unfocused, but just trying to focus on a lot of different things at one time. Um, and I think it fully clicked with me very recently uh, when we had players, player meetings and I asked for their feedback on me as a coach. And a couple of them said, you know, you seem sometimes are distracted at training and we know you're not, we know you're not distracted about something that doesn't matter because we know that this is what you're about and the team is what you're about. But it might be that uh, I'm thinking about recruiting or thinking about traveling our travel plans or thinking about something else that deals with our team and I might not be fully engaged in training and like that's not good enough and that's something I can definitely get better. And it's that, and it's that way too. I think I'm sitting in my office right now because I was working on some recruiting stuff for this weekend and uh, I have seven different piles of things on my desk that I'm doing. Um, and so just, I think that's a big blind spot of mine is can I, can I get focused on one thing and, and complete one task instead of trying to do seven tasks at once or thinking about seven different things at once? And it took, it, it's good because I, I had a good assistant coach who this year who, who would remind me of that, but also the players themselves when they feel comfortable and knowing me as a coach well enough to know that they can say, hey, coach, like this is something we see. And as a coach being, um, open enough to uh, listen to the people that you're serving uh, as players that, that this is something that you could do better. Um, so that's kind of what I think one of my biggest blind spots that I really want to work on improving. Yeah. I always found too that having what you just described, Joe, that uh, that assistant coach that, um, you know, can, can truthfully just be a compliment to us as coaches. Right. And, is different than us as coaches. Um, you know, if you have two or three people on a staff and we're all the same, you know, sometimes you need that debate. Sometimes you need people to say, Hey coach, have you ever thought about, you know, X, Y, and Z. And, um, you know, I, and I, I welcome that because, you know, I, I very much recognize that I'm a work in progress, uh, as a coach and that if, uh, you know, we all approach this profession with the, the open-mindedness of wanting to always improve and get better. You know, sometimes we have to hear things that might not always be the most pleasant, right? But in the end, we'll be better off as a team, as a program individually uh, because of it. Um, so I make a slight pivot. I, I, I'm always fascinated by communication and how coaches communicate with their players. And tell me, I, I guess, Take me from sort of the beginning, maybe until the end of when you sort of start with a recruiting, um, you know, engagement of a player that obviously there, there's rules and things like that that are, you know, dictated by governing bodies. But what does that look, you know, what does that look like for you? Um, are you sitting down with players individually? Are you, uh, 
um, you know, do pool players aside uh, during training and, you know, sometimes have to be very direct with them. Um, we live in a world, obviously, where technology has a massive influence on how we all communicate. Um, you know, that probably factors into all this. And so I'm curious how you sort of navigate that from your, uh, you know, coaching perch. I think the recruiting process has become super interesting with, with technology and players being much more willing to, to our uh, incoming players or potential recruits wanting to text. And at, at the division two level, we obviously, um, well, with the rules changing, we had a little bit more of leeway versus division one. Um, but uh, as far as communicating with recruits, we just try and stay in contact and, and give the most transparent uh, look at our program as possible, not just in here's what we have, but also in the process and always telling them like, hey, we have this many spots that we're looking to bring in. This is how many players we're looking at. Um, you know, just so it's not, there's no surprises with our recruiting process. And we ask the same from our, from the, the individuals that we're recruiting. And I think that sets a good precedent as there's, all, you, you set the precedent of honesty and transparency right away. Uh, and that way, if they do come to you, they know that you're, they're coming to someone who's going to be honest with them, but is also going to be transparent with them. Um, and not just selling, you know, not, not just selling them on something that's not, not real. And then once the players get here, I really, really like, um, the, I really like one-on-one -on -one conversations in the office, uh, or, you know, with, with my players, um, and not, not in terms of even meetings, but I, I just enjoy when they stop in for 10, 15 minutes uh, in between classes and just talking about if they want to talk about the game or talk about what they could do better in training. And then uh, as far as communication during training goes, it's, it's trying to be, I try to be specific because I think that when you're generals, you run it when you're generally critical or generally praising. I find that players sometimes think either, oh, that's me when it's not them, or that's not me when it's definitely them who could use the correction. Um, so I really, really do like being specific. I really do like developing that relationship with the player that we can have good conversations in or out of the office about their game, about school and, and, and all that. But communication can be tricky. And 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 especially with text messaging, you know, when players ask questions via text, I don't it's not it's always something I always my first response is how about you stop in the office and we talk about it um, because I think I get a better feel of them and they get a better feel of where I'm at. I, I love that. Uh, I love the specificity piece. Um, I mean, the, even the U10 boys uh, that I've been coaching. Um, I think that's really massive for them um, because it's easy to say, you know, well done or, or, or good or, you know, what are we doing here or whatever. Um, but when you really give them, uh, you know, that specificity, I, I mean, I've seen, I saw it last night, um, their eyes light up. And I think, you know, that's probably a generational thing too. Um, the players just seem to, they want that, they want, they crave that almost. Um, and I, I think there is tremendous value, Joe, in the the fact that um, you know the the willingness to meet with players in person uh, for a a generation of players that you know other coaches that I've talked to um, have said at times they might struggle players might struggle with those in person relationships and how to have you know if you, if you have a player come in or whatever. Um, it's not always, uh, you know, sunny in 75, right? That everything's good. You're doing a great job. You're working really hard. You know, you got a uh, spot in the first team. You know, uh, I love your work ethic. Uh, your, your nutrition's right. You're getting enough sleep. You're going to class. Your academics are on point, whatever. Like, those people don't always exist, right? Um, and the fact that, uh, you know, sometimes we have to have those really difficult and candid conversations with players. And I'm curious for you how you approach those um, you know, tough conversations with a player or, you know, if someone comes to you and says, Hey coach, and I'd really love to have more playing time. What do you say? Um, well, well, the one thing off your specificity thing, I, I, I know the player, my players 
always would want more of it. I think that's one of my biggest feedbacks is I, I just want to know more. I want to know more of what I can do. I want to know more of what I can do. And that's, and that's good. It's a good challenge for me. Um, as far as having the tough conversations, I, I think what I do is I treat every conversation the same in the sense that in my office, I have, I have this big desk, um, but none of my meetings and none of my conversations occur from me sitting behind the desk and them sitting uh, on the other side. I also have a little area that has uh, three or four soft kind of lounge chairs. Um, and that's where we sit and talk about no matter what the conversation is going to be, that's where we sit and we talk and it's a conversation versus me telling them what to do and me sitting from this point of authority, even though I am the point of authority. And, and, and I think anytime you have to have a tough conversation, you have to have as a coach, you have to have reasons behind it. You have to have legitimate reasons and you have, and you have to have examples uh, and to show them, you know, why you're not like, why this is not okay or why you aren't where you want to be. Um, and you can't just say it's because, oh, you're not playing good enough. You have to give them reasons or things of why behind what they're doing and what they can do better or, or maybe what their teammates are doing that they're not. But I try and keep every conversation in the same setting um, so the players, I don't want it to become like, oh, if Joe's behind the desk, that means it's a serious conversation versus if we're in the seating area, it's not. I want every conversation to be the same um, no matter what. And then we can, we can, we can build from there. Um, and usually we come to a pretty, pretty good understanding through that. Uh, and, it, and it has worked out well for the most part for me. Obviously not, everything, obviously, not everything's 100%. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, I've asked other coaches this. that um, So do you let the players define the program culture or you just sort of let it happen, um, I don't want to say organically, but, uh, you know, there isn't this um, – I guess uh, the words of uh, Erica Donbach, sort of very intentional, you know, purpose of uh, uh, their culture or whatever when she was talking about Penn State. Um, I'm, I'm wondering what it's like for you guys, uh, you know, with your program. Yeah, I I loved what she was saying and the intentional, like we're going almost not out of their way, but purposefully setting the culture and, and allowing their players to set the culture and then it kind of snowballing and building into that we have so one thing that we have set in our program is we have four pillars of four things that we can control that if we're good at those if not we as an individuals but if we as a team are good at these pillars we're going to be successful in the long run um, and the four pillars are strength effort attitude and selflessness um, I don't define those pillars on a given year. I just give those pillars to the players and they define what those pillars mean to them, um, not just as individuals, but as a team. And we've had some really cool results, some that I haven't even witnessed because uh, I give them the opportunity. Uh, for example, we do our official visit weekend with all of our incoming players. We do it all at the same time so we can kind of have our whole team together of what it's going to look like for the fall. And during that official visit, I give our upperclassmen the opportunity to talk to the incoming players as well as their current teammates and almost give a, not a presentation, but almost talk about what one of the pillars means to them and an example of how you can be good, individually strong, but also what strength means to the team as a whole, or effort means to the team, or attitude means to the team, or what selflessness means to the team, and why those pillars are important, and what those pillars mean to them. And I'm not present during those conversations, because I want them to be as real as they possibly can be without worrying about, I trust them that they're going to say good things, but I also want them to worry about, not have to worry about, you know, what I think of what they're saying. Uh, I know they're saying good things and I know they're saying the right things, but I want them to feel uh, unburdened by having to say what they think I want to hear. And I want them to say what they truly believe about, about each of those pillars. Um, 
and I've, I've heard good feedback from doing that. And so it's kind of a mix of both. It's kind of setting the table for what we want our culture to be, but handing, handing it over to the players to allow them to dictate what, what the definition of our culture is. That has to be uh, pretty incredible, right? If you're a new incoming player and sort of the, I guess I would use the word onboarding that happens um, because I, I think it's incredibly important for that player to get sort of a lay of the land. They're going to get a sense of that if they're obviously, if they're being recruited by you, but for them to sort of see it in action, right? There's a lot of, um, you know, I guess I would use the word pageantry uh, in recruiting in that, so they make the commitment, you know, then they show up and then like they can see, you know, I think you're delivering, you then begin to deliver on sort of those promises or those hopes or those ideas that uh, were probably talked about in uh, in recruiting. And I also think the uh, tip of the cap to you, Joe, for sort of the, the self-awareness um, of let the players drive it. Um, I, I think that that's really cool. And I think, you know, just understanding that, you know, this is theirs um you're just the captain of the ship in essence and you know but they have real ownership of it um because i think you probably can get the most out of the players you know when it happens that way and um yeah so i i mean i think that's from a coach to coach tip of the cap to you <laughs> well and it's a, it's still a work in progress too i mean uh and i think that i i i hope that it it shows the improvements on the on the obviously wins and losses side of things, but um, I, I will say that our players are our best recruiters. Uh, when we come onto campus and or when recruits come onto campus and they get the opportunity to uh, chat with some of our players or stay with some of our players, um, our, our girls exemplify our, pro, our, our su support and exemplify what I want our program to be about. And, and, we don't, I don't have a lot of players ever leaving campus saying, uh, I was bored or, oh, I, you know, I wasn't sure about the girls or they were too much for me. Um, they're always just, they're, they're on the spot and they do a ton of work in the recruiting process, especially when kids visit campus. Um, and so it, that, that means a lot to me because it shows that the, the girls believe in the program. Having coached both boys and girls, do you have a preference? Um, yeah, I started, I started as a boys coach and I, I actually didn't truly really coach on the, on the girls or the women's side till I went down to the university of Wyoming. Um, I don't have a true preference. I do enjoy coaching both. There's definitely some differences in both. And I think it would be hard for me now having been on the women's side for several years to just jump back into maybe a college men's team or a high school boys team, just because the mentality of the players can be so different and, and what's, what's uh, just, just kind of how their thought processes are and, and the team dynamics are different. Um, but I, I don't have a, I don't have a preference, but I do really, I, I, I have really enjoyed coaching on the women's side. And I, as a 22 year old, 23 year old, when I was making that, that kind of that jump into something new, I was really unsure of how it was going to go. Um, and it's gone, it's gone really well. And it's been, it's been, I don't have any regrets of, of, of moving or any coaching positions I've ever had because it's, it's been great. Where do you see things going? Uh, you know, if you had to project maybe five, 10 years out. That's a good question. Actually, my, my travel partner in our conference asked me that all the time and the travel partner coach asked me that all the time. And when I was 23 sitting in one of my mentor's offices at the University of Mary, and he asked me what I wanted to do, and I told him I wanted his job, um, he laughed. And I, I, at that time, I thought being a Division II head coach would, have been, would be awesome. And I didn't think that I would be there five years from that point. Um, so I, I, I really need to sit down and think about where I see five to 10 years from now, but I really like where I'm at. Um, I want to, I want us to be better and I want to build our program. Um, but I, I see myself coaching at the division two level in five to 10 years, whether it's here or somewhere else. I, I just, I really, I really like the, the division two model. 
I really like uh, what 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 it's about at this level and at a lot of these at, a, at the schools that I've been at at the Division two level. So you, you probably know the question that's coming. <laughs> so I'll, uh, I'll use that as my prefer, uh, preface. But um, what are we doing right and uh, what are we doing wrong in this country when it comes to soccer? Man, the, the, the favorite question of soccer Twitter. Um, I don't know. I think, I think off of what we were talking about a little bit earlier tonight, I think one of the things we do wrong is we write off soccer or people from certain areas of the country or from certain backgrounds because they're not of the pedigree or they're not from this or they don't play at this level. And I just think we miss coaches and we miss players because of it. I really do. And I don't think we give enough time um, to, to everybody. Um, and it, that's, that's kind of the bummer. I think that, I think that people get missed because they coach at a certain level or people get missed because they play at a certain level. And I've ran into brilliant players and coaches at all levels in all states. Um, but I think one thing we're doing right is I think we're promoting the love of the game. People, I, I, I mean, if you'd have told me when I was 15 that soccer would be so big in the United States and my friends who didn't coach, didn't coach or play soccer would be asking me about soccer and watching soccer and have favorite soccer teams and wake up early on Saturdays to watch, watch European games. I would have, I would have laughed because I couldn't convince a friend to watch a soccer game sometimes when I was, you know, 15 years ago. Um, so I think one of the things we're doing right is we are promoting the game and we're doing a good job of that across the board um, at all levels. I think people love playing soccer. People love watching soccer. And that's a testament to the people in the game. It's a good answer. That's, uh, I like that. I agree with you. Um, and encountered the same challenge of uh, finding people to watch soccer games with me when I was younger <laughs> too. <laughs> Uh, grew up in a very, still live in a very uh, rich American football culture here in the Pittsburgh area. And uh, if you don't cheer for the almighty Pittsburgh Steelers, then people want to put your head on a platter, I think. So, mm -hmm. um, Joe, if, uh, if folks want to connect with you uh, and follow along in your journey at, uh, at Wayne State College and what you're doing with the women's program, how can they do that? Uh, I mean, they can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm not, to be honest, I don't probably use my Twitter as much, uh, as much in coaching in the vein as some of the other coaches that I follow. Um, I tweet stuff about other sports. I tweet stuff about funny things that happen with my family and friends and my dog. And that's probably not what people want to see all the time, but it's, it's who I am. Um, but people could follow our, our soccer social media on Instagram and Twitter at Wayne State Soccer. Um, we, we do a lot on there of promoting our team and showing you kind of what, what our program's about. But I also, anyone who wants to message me or email me anytime, I, you know, I, I always like talking and, and meeting new people. I think that's been the coolest part of my, my journey is all the coaches I've met. And it, it's, just been, it's just been fun. Very cool. Well, Joe, uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast. And uh, just want to wish you and Wayne State College and the women's program a lot of success. And uh, yeah, you're welcome back anytime on the show, man. Yeah, anytime you want to have me, uh, I'd, I'd love to come back on. Want to save 10% on your next DukeTigBrand.com order? Use the promo code BROADWATER19 at checkout. D-U-K-T-I-G-BRAND.COM. If you've listened to the show before, you know how much I love DukeTigBrand. I use their Excel notebook. I use their waterproof notebook and absolutely swear by their products.
Go to duketigbrand.com right now, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com, and save 10% at checkout on your next order. From apparel to logos to coaching notebooks, Duketig Brand has got you hooked up. DukeTigBrand.com, promo code Broadwater19 at checkout. A massive thank you to Joe Cleary for coming on the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast. And hopefully, uh, Joe's episode provided a bit of inspiration. If you're ever at that crossroads in your coaching journey of giving up or continuing on, Hopefully that was a, a little bit of motivation and inspiration to keep going because we all know how hard it can be to climb the coaching ladder and the number of adversities and roadblocks that potentially could be out there. So Joe, thank you for sharing your story. Um, I'd love to have you back on uh, sometime in the future. If you're a regular to this show, you know that I've said before that this summer is going to be massive for us in terms of stories and guests and people and things that you love about this podcast. And next week is a good example of that. I have three podcasts already lined up that I'm going to share with you. And the newest episode is actually going to drop on Monday with a very well-known coaching education author and uh, a chance to share his backstory. So I'll tease it that way. I don't want to give the name away uh, of the person, but uh, I think you're really going to like that episode. Have other episodes that are absolutely fantastic next week, talking about youth sports culture, win at all cost, this cutthroat mentality that we have here in the U.S. And if you're a parent, if you're a youth coach, you definitely don't want to miss those episodes. And of course, uh, there will be more and more coaches and players and other influencers in the game coming your way this summer. So if you haven't subscribed to the show, you want to make sure you do that because you'll never know when a new episode will show up in your feed. We're actually approaching 50 episodes, which is some pretty crazy shit if you ask me. All right, guys, that about does it for me. Thank you so much for listening to the On the Touchline podcast. Be sure to connect on social media and share the show out with friends and those in the soccer community in a brand new episode coming your way on Monday. And until then, hope you guys have a nice weekend. I'll talk to you real soon. This has been the On the Touchline podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. <laughs>